So if you can imagine for a moment, a police officer, he runs into someone on the street and the man's exhibiting maybe signs of uh, mental illness or maybe just uh, a little bit uh, confused. And in the course of the conversation, the police officer says, are you paranoid? And the man says, paranoid, no. It's just that everybody's out to get me. And you can laugh at the absurdity of all of that, but uh, for an occasion, you've probably run into someone who does think everyone's out to get them. And yet, there are some people from time to time who do have a reason to be paranoid. And there are people who are out to get them. Experts tell us that there are Christians living in more than 60 countries around the world who face persecution by their governments or by the surrounding community simply because of their Christian faith. They run the risks of beatings and torture and confinement and isolation, rape, imprisonment, even slavery, simply because they've expressed faith in Jesus Christ. They may experience discrimination in education and housing and employment, again, because they've chosen to follow Jesus. In 2015, the world was shocked when video emerged of uh, some ISIS militants in Libya beheading 21 Christians. Now, what happened in the weeks that followed was uh, the story. This was all captured on video, and so people began to listen to it and found out the story of one interesting person who was one of those who was executed that day. His name is Matthew. Uh, They know that he was from Chad. They don't know exactly how he got into this group of captives, but he was not a Christian. And so here he was being lined up with all the others, bound and told that he needed to say, as the others were told to say, to reject Christian faith and to embrace Islam. And one by one, each of these men were asked the question, and when they declined to deny their Christian faith, they were executed. And then it came to Matthew's turn. On video, what they've been able to hear is that his captors asked him, do you reject Jesus? And he said, their God is my God. And in the moment that he became a Christian, he lost his life. In general, I don't believe that American Christians have any idea what real persecution is. Persecution is not being restricted from handing out tracts in a high school. It's not prohibitions against prayer at high school football games. There are forms of persecution that Christians in America face, but in, in, really, to put it in perspective, it's mild compared to the, the things that, persecu- that people can uh, experience around the world. Before we finish today, I want to come back and talk about persecution today, but I think it's important first that we look at the words of Jesus from nearly 2,000 years ago to get some perspective on this topic. Just a little background. In the years that followed Jesus' resurrection from the dead, the early Christians faced persecution almost immediately. In fact, one of the first waves of persecution was led under the leadership of a man named Saul of Tarsus, and you may know that he would later be renamed Paul. But he was responsible for the imprisonment, an execution of a number of the earliest Christians. Now, the irony is he would later choose to become a follower of Jesus Christ and experience persecution himself. So for over 250 years, Christians experienced outright persecution, intermittent beatings, imprisonments, executions, and nearly constant social pressure from the surrounding cultural community to give up their allegiance to Jesus Christ. Now, at times this persecution was brutal, Other times, not so bad, but they lived with the constant fear that any moment, whatever they were experiencing could change. But you could not say that they had not been warned because they had been by the words of Jesus Christ. We're in a series this Lent called John on Jesus, and it's a look at the second half of John's biography of Jesus in the New Testament. And the section we're looking at today comes in the midst of a conversation that Jesus had with his disciples the last night that he was with them. 
Jesus was preparing them for his departure, among other things, giving them a vision of what the future would look like, both for eternity and in the next few years. And he told them that he was leaving them. That made them sad and anxious, so he gave words of comfort, but he also had some words of warning, some words of caution that alerted them to the dangers that would be ahead. I want us to look at some of these words from John chapter 15. We're going to begin reading with verse 18. If you'd like to follow along, you can grab one of the Pew Bibles. Uh, this will be beginning on page 1643, page 1643, John 15, verse 18, or you can follow along with the words on the screen. Jesus says this, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Remember what I told you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. They will treat you this way because of my name, for they do not know the one who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not be guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father as well. If I had not done among them the works no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. As it is, they have seen, and yet they have hated both me and my father. But this is to fulfill what is written in the law. They hated me without reason. This is the word of the Lord. The beginning of what Jesus says here in verses 18 and 19 he takes some of the blame for the persecution that these early Christians would experience. He says, remember, the people of the world hate you and mistreat you because of me. He says, if you lived according to the world's values on their terms, they would love you as one of their own, but they don't. In fact, I have asked you to live by a different set of values, the values of the kingdom of God, and they will hate you for it. Verses 20 and 21, he gives some of the reasons why. Why would the average person turn so harshly on these early Christians? Well, he said it's complicated, but he gives some possible answers. He says, because following Jesus means you'll have a different set of loyalties than those around you. Your ultimate loyalty will be to me, to Jesus. By the way, the early uh, Roman officials uh, thought that Christians were disloyal to the empire. The earliest Christian creed was not the Apostles' Creed. That would emerge over 300 years later. It's a short version, a summary of Christian doctrine. We quote it from time to time here at City Church. Their earliest creed was something much simpler and much shorter. In fact, just three words in English. And the creed is, Jesus is Lord. Romans would occasionally, in a community, maybe in one of the outlying areas in the Roman Empire, would line up the people in a neighborhood or a village or a community, and they would say, you need to pledge allegiance to the emperor. And they would make them say, Caesar is Lord. The Christians were noted for refusing to do this, sometimes even at the loss of life. They would not give allegiance to, to Caesar, only calling Jesus Lord. And that's what Jesus means when he says, they'll treat you this way because of my name. Not just because they say the name of Jesus, but because they gave their ultimate loyalty to Jesus Christ. So the reason they experienced such hostility is because they chose to put Jesus first. Then in verses 22 to 25, he tells them that all those around them are guilty of sin because they have been informed. They have been told what the truth is. He says, I have told them the difference between righteousness and sin. 
And they've also been able to recognize my identity by the things that I do. The things that Jesus did revealed a pattern that was predicted by the ancient prophets. So the things he did, both miraculous and other ways, the ways he reached out to the sick and the poor and the outcast of his day, those things had been predicted as the kinds of things that a Messiah would do. So they've heard and they've seen the things that they should have recognized, and yet still they hated me. And he says, by extension, they hated my father. This, Jesus says in the end, confirms what the poet prophet in the book of in Psalms predicted, and that is that they hated him, that is the Messiah, for no good reason. Now, implied in what Jesus says is a phenomenon that many of us can identify with, and that is the times when someone's doing the right thing and others are doing the wrong thing, and uh, there's an awkwardness that sometimes emerges with those who are doing something wrong feeling guilty because of other people doing something right. And often this happens for us when we're doing something wrong and someone else is doing the right thing and we feel this twinge or even more than a twinge of guilt. One time in uh, early years of City Church, we rented a couple of different houses to office out of before we bought this church building. And one time I said something to someone who worked at City Church at the time. I said something disparaging about a woman that we both knew. And I said it, and as soon as it went out of my mouth, I realized I probably shouldn't have said that. And she just looked at me and said, John. And I knew what she meant. You shouldn't have said that. She was right, and I was wrong. What Jesus is talking here about, though, is the flip side of that, the other side of the equation, and that is when we're doing the right thing and someone else is doing the wrong thing, and whether from guilt or embarrassment, it's not uncommon for someone to lash out at a Christian for obedience to Jesus. Now, sometimes this may be because a Christian is committed, say, to social justice, and they're called a communist because they are advocating on behalf of the needs of the poor. Or it could be a high school student who refuses to party only to see social media blow up with criticism of what they are doing. Or a young woman in her 20s wondering if she'll ever meet a guy to share her life with and someone who shares her commitment to sexual purity before marriage. It can be tough to do the right thing because you know that perhaps others won't understand you and maybe even shun you. It can be lonely to obey Jesus. Jesus ends this section by saying that he taught them through his words and actions and therefore the people of that day are accountable for their sins. Knowledge brings responsibility. The more we know, the more responsible we are. And then he shifts at the beginning of chapter 16. He wants them to understand this all in perspective. And so he says, I've told you this so that you will not fall away. What he means by this is, listen, I want you to be prepared so you don't crumble at the first sign of opposition. He goes on to say, they will put you out of the synagogue. In fact, the time is coming when anyone who kills you will think that they are offering service to God. They will do such things because they have not known the Father or me. I've told you this so that when the time comes, you will remember that I have warned you about them. So trouble's coming. He says, it's even possible that they will kill you and believe that they are doing God a favor. And then... In the last half of chapter 16, Jesus picks up this topic of persecution again, although this time he's a little more hopeful in his perspective. In verses 16 to 22, he tries to clear up some confusion that the disciples may have had about something that he said. He had made this cryptic statement, and if you listen to it, you say, mm, what does he mean? He said, in a little while, you will see me more, no more, and then after a little while, you will see me. So you'll see me no more, and then you'll see me. That sounds kind of odd. Now, they had no idea what he was talking about, so he explained. He said, soon I'm going to be leaving you. Later, they would understand that that was his 
his arrest, his trial, his conviction, his crucifixion on a cross. And then he says, I'm going to come back. And that would be his resurrection on Easter Sunday morning. So he says in verse 20 that in the short term, they're going to weep and mourn while the world around them throws a party. And that's exactly what happened. And then he said, don't be surprised then when your grief turns to joy, joy that no one in the world can take away from you. And that's the story of Easter Sunday morning. And then Jesus uses a metaphor to explain all of this. And I'm a little puzzled why he used this metaphor. He's talking to 12 guys, and he uses the metaphor of childbirth. So they only could know this by extension if they had wives and had to experience the, the joy that it is to see a child born. He says, a woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come. But when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy that a child is born into the world. So with you. Now is your time of grief but I will see you again and you will rejoice and no one will take away that joy. John, the disciple of Jesus who wrote this biography, would later explain this whole idea more fully in a book that we call the book of Revelation. John was given a revelation, a vision of what the world would look like at the end when Jesus returns. And the story he tells in Revelation chapter 20 and 21 is the story of how when Jesus returns, this world will be renovated. It's kind of, you know, a home improvement on steroids where this whole world will be completely uh, revolutionized and a new heaven and a new earth will be created. So he says, right now you may experience grief, but hang on, one day you will be in a place where you're so full of joy that nothing can take it away. And then he sums this all up at the end of chapter 16 this way, in verses 32 and 33. He says, a time is coming. In fact, it has come when you will be scattered. I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you may have trouble, but take heart. I've overcome the world. Now, when he says that they'll be scattered, what he's talking about is actually a dark day. That's the day just a few hours after this conversation when Jesus would be arrested and... As he had predicted, the disciples would scatter. They would run away. They would hide. Peter, at this point, begins the process of denying Jesus three times. But he tells them that in the end, they will experience peace, even though they will have to suffer. So cheer up. I've defeated the world system, he ends. Now, where does this bring us, and how do we think, then, about persecution? Now, if you're like me, you like to be liked. You don't like it when somebody takes you know, offense at what you say or do. That's what makes this so hard. We all want to fit in. We don't want to go against the grain. And so culture goes one way and we feel like we should, out of loyalty to Jesus, go the other way. That's really hard, especially maybe when we don't completely understand everything that we read in the Bible. We don't understand why there are prohibitions about one thing or another. And we're trying to decide, do I trust God and obey? Or do I go the way that seems right to me? What Jesus challenges here is the myth of fitting in, the idea that faith should be something that we understand and feel comfortable with, and others should as well. That's why Jesus warns his disciples that it is possible that others may criticize them for following him. It may come from those who don't understand the Christian commitment to compassion and justice for the poor and the sick, for women and children, for refugees, for the marginalized, for the lost and the lonely and the broken. Or it may be from those who don't understand the Christian commitment to personal righteousness, from our speech to our sexuality, seeking in all things to trust the wisdom that we find from God in the Bible. Jesus is asking us to do something both ordinary and extraordinary at the same time, to trust and follow him, even if it means we won't exactly fit in the way that we might like. 
Some today would like us to believe that faith is only a private thing, and they are half right. Faith is something personal, something deeply personal. As Ken said today in the faith story, you have to make a personal decision to, make, to become followers of Jesus Christ. No one else can believe for you. But we cannot live our faith out privately. It's not like it can be some sort of secret. Faith in Jesus Christ means putting him at the center of our lives. That's going to affect both the inside and the outside of our lives, affect both the way we think and what we do. That's what it means to follow Jesus. Now, this brings us back to where we started with the question of persecution. So how are we to think about persecution today? For the most part, I think that it's an insult to Christians around the world to claim that we're being persecuted for Christ in the United States. It happens, and we can come up with examples, but for the most part, it demeans the sacrifices that millions around the world make today to follow Jesus. Few of us are forced to leave our homes, um, become alienated from our families for following Christ. It happens, but it's rare. Few of us have lost a job or even a promotion because of our faith. I doubt you've ever met an American Christian who was beaten or imprisoned because they're a Christian, so we need to be careful about throwing around the P word. It's true that cultural disdain, though, toward historic Christian faith is increasing. But we need to be clear that the goal is not to make Christianity popular again. It's not to make this a Christian nation. Some believe that that's what Christianity or uh, America once was. But the truth is more complicated. For one, many, if not most, of America's uh, founding fathers couldn't sign the city church statement of faith. Many of them were deists, or others, like Thomas Jefferson, denied one or more Orthodox Christian doctrines. So our goal here is not to do that, but to faithfully live out our allegiance to Jesus Christ, to put him first in all we do, regardless of how others treat us. The pressures we experience are often much subtler than those maybe do around the world, and we need to have the courage to be different and the willingness to be seen, even as a bit strange. Now, that doesn't mean that we ought to go out looking for persecution. It will find you if you're faithful. And it also isn't an excuse to be obnoxious. We do need to be obedient, but not obnoxious. And I've always been uncomfortable with the idea that we're fighting a culture war. I also don't think, as some are arguing today, that Christians ought to withdraw and isolate from the world around us to create some kind of parallel world with separate schools and radio stations and everything else. I don't really even care if we lose the culture war. I'm not sure that it was worth winning. Instead, we need to focus on being faithful to Jesus Christ, even if it means that we look a little strange to those around us. We need to let the church be the church and be a prophetic and faithful Christian minority. And at times, we need to lean in to what we can do for this world. We have a different vision of things than perhaps those do around us. It's a vision inspired by our understanding of Jesus. But what we do, we need to do with civility, with convictional kindness that doesn't change what we do or say, but maybe changes how we do it or how we say it. And living it out with wisdom, the wisdom that comes with a vision of righteousness for the common good of everyone around us. So here's the deal. It's not gonna be easy. It may be intellectually taxing for us to figure out how to respond in a world that's constantly changing. It can be morally difficult to stay true to the biblical vision of righteousness when everyone around us is giving us a free pass to live out our passions or to do what we know God has wisely placed off limits. But know that this isn't just a grin and bear it message of dour duty. Jesus said, you may grieve now, but one day your grief will turn to joy, a joy that no one can take away. 
Some years ago, a representative from Teach for America went to Duke University. Uh, Teach for America recruits some of the best and brightest college graduates and places them in some of America's worst public schools. A Teach for America rep stood before, before this group of Duke students and said, it looks like I've come to the wrong place, he said. I've heard that uh, Duke is an M, uh, BMW school, and from looking around, it is. He said, someone told me that uh, you've achieved a lot of success, and from what I can see, you're on track for a lot more success from here. So I'm here to convince you to throw away your life and take one of the toughest jobs you'll ever take, and I can tell probably no one here will even want to do that. I'm going to recruit people to go to the hollows of West Virginia and the ghettos of South L.A. to teach in some of the worst public schools in America. Last year, two of our teachers were killed on the job. So I can see by looking at you that you're not interested. So go to grad school, make your millions, live for success and comfort. But if by chance you're interested in one of the toughest jobs in America, I have a few brochures and you're welcome to come. That's it. Have a nice day. And he was mobbed by students in that room asking for more information on Teach for America. Some of us here in City Church are reading through the New Testament. We have these little guides that you can get out in the lobby on the credenza and the, under the Jeremiah wall. And what it does is it just takes you through a chapter at a time, the whole New Testament. You can read it in one year, reading Monday through Friday. Um, and so some of us have started this. This is designed so you don't get behind. You can just keep going whenever you want so you can start even now. But I started in January, and last week I read some of the words of Luke chapter 9, where Jesus says this. He says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for, the, for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very self? I think deep down, God has wired us to give our lives to something with a sense of purpose. A comfortable life without challenge may be safe, but ultimately it's boring and meaningless. That's what attracted so many to Jesus. Sure, he can be gentle and kind, but he can turn around the next, next time we see him and challenge us to the core of our existence. Do you want your life to count? Or do you want to gain the whole world and then realize that you have to leave it behind at the end? Or do you want to give yourself wholeheartedly to Jesus and experience what he challenged his disciples with, that in me you may have peace, because in this world you may have trouble, but take heart, I've overcome the world. So don't be ashamed of Jesus. Don't be afraid to be out of step with the rest of America. We may live in a world that doesn't share our values, but frankly, that's always been true of the Christian church. Our end goal is not a Christian America, but a true kingdom of God made up of people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, Faithful to Jesus to the end. Let's pray. Father, first today, we acknowledge that there are people around the world, even at this moment, who are facing great pressure to uh, deny you as their Lord and Savior. People under threat, physical threat, emotional threat, their jobs, their housing, and other things. Father, we pray with them and for them. But Father, we also understand that we'll face our own sorts of pressure. Let us not be surprised. May we remain faithful to you. May we also keep in mind that in any grief that we experience, we'll soon be replaced with enduring joy. We pray this in Jesus' name.